I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher at Grace and Truth Ministries. <laughs> and uh, I'm here to teach you how to study the Bible. That's what I've been concentrating on lately. I'm teaching you. I brought some more books with me so I can help you to understand. You've got, if you're, I don't understand why preachers won't teach people about a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. The Strong's Concordance has, it has every word in the Bible listed alphabetically. And when you're, it'll go start from the Old Testament, you look up a word, and it will go through and tell you every time that word is mentioned. And it, there is a number to the right of the word. If it's an Old Testament word, it'll be in the Hebrew dictionary in the back. You look up that number, it'll give you the word, and it'll give you the word in Hebrew, and then it'll give you the definition. And it may say C, and it'll give you another number. It means it comes from that number. You've got to look up all the C's. C so-and-so. And if it's a New Testament word, <clears throat> it'll be in the Greek dictionary in the back. <clears throat> it will say, if it says, let's say, for instance, confess. I don't know the number on it, but it'll have a number here. And then it may say, it'll say homo or homu which is the same thing as homo. And then it'll say, it'll say C, and it'll have homo, or it'll give you a number for homo, and, and the word logos. And it'll give you a number for that, number. I think that's 3016 or something like that. Say C3016, and that'll be logos, and that's the word word. And then it will say, to agree with. So, agree with, and that and that's what confess means, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. Well, homo, logos, that means to be of the same word or to agree with. That's what it means. But then you'll go, you'll run across things in Scripture like, this is why you constantly need to define words. You run across Titus one sixteen, and it will say, Some men profess that they know God, and when you see that profess, and you look it up, it will, I don't know why the translators did this, but it'll have homo legao, profess, is talking about they'll say with their mouth that they know God, but in works they deny Him. They deny Christ. So confession, homologeo, is has to do with works. Not works for salvation, but salvation that works. Can you see that? So in works they deny him, denies the word A R N E O M A I. Arneomai Arneomai means to contradict. So what you do contradicts Christ 
or agrees with Christ contradict. So in works they deny him. Well, in the that's this is Titus, and then if you if you are familiar with the verse over in First John three. I'm showing you how you tie words together as you study. Titus, uh, excuse me, 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 22, I believe it is. He that denieth Christ, it says, he that denieth which is the same word as Arneomai, contradict Christ by your works, by what you do. And what is it that you do? He that denieth Christ is Antichrist. It doesn't mean you are the Antichrist and you're going to come back breathing fire. It doesn't mean that. Antichrist means... Anti means... Instead of, you put your place, you put yourself in the place of Christ. Instead of, or in the place of. You put yourself in the place of Christ when you deny Christ, but not, by not working. I'm simply showing you how one verse couples with another verse. So this couples with 1 John 2.22, the same thing, Titus one sixteen. So if you profess, and and that will take you back to what Jesus said in Matthew Matthew fifteen, when he said of Israel, "This people honor me with their lips, but in works they deny Christ, but they're far from me." And that's quoted from Isaiah, the 29th chapter. So, it's not we're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith that works. And the Bible, what gets me, my father being an independent Baptist preacher, all independent Baptists love Ephesians 2.8. By grace you are saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works. They sound like parrots. They get on that and they say works has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with it. Faith. I don't know why they never discovered Galatians 5 and 6. Galatians 5 and 6. Why did my father never see that? Faith worketh. Faith works. Worketh. I can't spell what I'm talking. Okay. Worketh by love. Oh, does faith work by liking people? No. That's not what it says. First of all, you've got to know the difference between agape and phileo. So notice how you can take a word and trace it all the way back through the Bible 
to what you're talking about. They're all a part of the same chain. Well, what is it that we do? Truth. John, the third chapter, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he said, He that doeth truth cometh to the light. What is doing truth? Definition was truth. Truth. He that doeth truth. Well, that's our works. He that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifest. Cometh to the light. That would be the whole Rizzo, wouldn't it? That has to do with Romans 8 and 29. For whom he did foreknow, he knew a whom. It does not say for what God foreknew, even though he knew what. Why did God know everything that would happen? He ordained everything. He's declared the end. Notice I keep going from one verse to another, and they all tie together. He's declared the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, everything that's not yet done in your life and mine, saying, my counsel shall stand and I'll do all my pleasure. If you have a car wreck, that's God's will. If you get sick, that's the will of God. If you get well, that's the will of God. If you get a job, that's God's will. If you get fired, that's the will of God. Everything. So, whom he did foreknow, prognosco. Those are the ones that he has predestinated, prohorizo. Horizo is our word. Horizo, that little diacritical mark is a breathing sound. It's an H sound. Horizo, there's no H's in the Greek language, but there's the diacritical mark when you find it. H-O-R-I-Z-O. And then the Latins, Latins put an I-N on it, on the end of it. So it means to predetermine for the light. He that doeth truth cometh to the light. So that's what we do when we profess we know God, we have to do the works of God, we do truth. What, what is truth? <laughs> well, that's what Pilate said to Jesus. What is truth? It's real simple. Just define the word. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. That's the word truth right there. Notice we're just, we took a, took a verse, took another verse that had the same word, over here, it takes us back to here, over here, back to here, and that's where we end up. We actually ended up here. So, the people God foreknew, prognosco, N-O-S-K-O. Prognosco, the ones he foreknew to know intimately, Gnosko beforehand. He knew us before the foundation of the world. In his mind, we didn't exist as beings before the foundation of the world. He said, Jim Brown's going to be born and he's going to be mine. I'm going to convict his heart and I've got his life arranged this way and he'll hear the truth and he'll believe me because I'll put it in his heart. So, the horizon is the horizon. So he that doeth truth cometh to the horizon. So, 
when we are in the horizo, the boundary of light, that's because we're doing truth that God put in our heart. Since none seeks after God and nobody does the truth, truth is the word aletheia, it is a construction of the word lanthano. Lanthano means to hide, conceal, lie hid. The alpha in front of a word as a negative particle. When you look in your concordance and you're looking up truth, it'll say from lanthano, meaning to hide or conceal, and the alpha privative. The alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, as a negative particle. Negative means it's going to give an opposite meaning. So as a negative particle, as a negative particle, the alpha means not to hide anything. So when you do the truth, you don't hide anything. And that's how you end up with a daily cross. People... Don't like to hear Christmas is pagan, Easter is pagan, God doesn't love everybody. And when you tell them that, then you end up doing the truth. And what else do you do? First John 3, 7. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So, This is the word for do. This is for the works that we do. But we don't work for salvation. We work because we're being saved. We work because God has put it in us to work. And faith worketh by love. Well, love is... In order to explain this, you've got to give the meaning of the word phileo and agape. They're not the same word. And yet, these translators have taken this one word, or these two words, agape and phileo, and made them one word in the English, and they're not. If you have a Kittles Dictionary of New Testament Greek words, Kittles, I've got a set of those. It's a ten-volume set. And when you look up the word agape in there, there's 34 pages just on the word agape. And they will tell you in there that agape was a relationship that fathers had for their families. They had sons, and if a guy was a carpenter, he would teach his son to be a carpenter so he could make a living. That's a part of of agape. It was a relationship that fathers had for their families, that kings had for their subjects. What's the amazing thing is, when you find that out and you start looking at the word covenant in the Old Testament, and there's a, there's a set of books called Theological Word Book. T-H-E-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Theological word book of the Old Testament. Of Old Testament. In that, when you look up covenant, Berith, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H, it will tell you the same exact words that I described for agape 
it will say, this is, it will say, this is the relationship that kings had for their subjects. They gave them laws. They willingly walked them. That's a covenant. That's also agape. I bring out a point. When you look at a word in your concordance and other word study books, don't just look at the definition. Look at definitions compared to definitions. If you can find the same definition in another word, it means the same thing. They're synonyms. So covenant and agape are more or less the same. So if faith works by agape, being what we said in the theological word book and what we said in Kittles, it's a relationship that kings had for their subjects. Well, Second John 6 bears this out. That actually equates with Kittles and with Theological Word Book. This is a two-volume set, Theological Word Book. It was correlated by one of my favorite authors, Gleason Archer. You get anything by Gleason Archer, he was I don't recommend a lot of modern-day theologians. Gleason Archer was brilliant. I mean, man, he will fry your brain. He's got one book called Survey of the Old Testament. It's some powerful book. They will say things you've got to stop and think for a long time. Gleason Archer, this theological word book, is by Walkie. Harrison or Harris and Archer. Richard Archer was one of my favorite modern writers. He died in the nineties. In fact, a fellow that works out here at Logos Bookstore across town, uh, Ralph White, he said I worked with him. He said, Boy, he was a smart man. I said, I've I've read some of his works, Survey of the Old Testament, and some other works by him, and he was... I don't recommend many writers to this day and time, but him I recommend highly. Now, so we're talking about what do we do? I'm showing you how we're just going, going through all this, and it brings us back to predestination brings back to horizon, he that doeth truth cometh to light. Truth is taking the cover off. It's not hiding anything. And that's how you get a daily cross, by telling people the truth. They don't want to hear death to self, daily cross, self-denial. They don't want to hear that Paul said, I die daily and you're supposed to die daily. The Bible says says that several times. Luke 9.23, let a man, if any man after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. How do you get across telling people the unvarnished truth? Say it plain to the point. So, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. I I guess we need to... This is not hard to understand. Righteous is the word dikaio, D-I-K, Actually, righteousness is the word D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. That's the word righteousness. It comes from this this word D-I-K, 
J-U-S-T-I-F-Y-A-I-O-O, which is the word justify. And justify means to declare innocent. That is That comes from the bench of a judge. Declare innocent or declare right. In fact, the word right is the word D-I-K-E. You see the word D-I-K, D-I-K? That's the stem of the word. Everything else is built upon the stem. Stem. That's what the word's built on. So D-I-K-E is the word right. Boy. So let me just put it this way. First John 3 and 7. He that doeth right is righteous. Do you know what right is? Certainly you do. <laughs> the Bible says, When those without the law do by nature the things contained in the law, they're a law unto themselves. They know what's right. I've done some studies on heathens. There's not a tribe in the world that they can find that doesn't know that it's wrong to kill a man or to take another man's wife. No tribe anywhere. They know that. It's just something common in man. So that's written in men's hearts. Now, I hope I got off on this subject, but I'm trying to talk to you how to study the Bible with a concordance and with an analytical lexicon using and this is this is number three in this series how to use an interlinear Bible. I'm going to show you something here. This is an interlinear Bible. It's got the let me go ahead and say what I was going to say. Anytime you have a proper name like God, there's always, in John 3.16, I've taught on this. It doesn't say what the world is saying. It says, I won't go into whosoever is not in the Bible. It's nowhere in the Bible. In the original text, he's, whosoever is a invented word by the translators doesn't say whosoever believeth in him. It says, for God so loved the world. So is an adverb. Is it important to know what adverbs do and what they are? Yeah, it is. It says, God so adverbs tell how, when, where, and why? Sometimes why? So tells how or in what fashion God loved. How or in what fashion? You don't start a sentence with for God's so. It has to be referring back to something previously said. It's referring back to John 3.14. 3.14 and that refers back to Numbers, the ninth chapter. Numbers 9, John three fourteen says, 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For God in this same fashion loved the world. What did he do with the serpent in the wilderness? God turned these fiery serpents, these poison serpents loose on Israel in the wilderness, wilderness because they were murmuring against God. So the Lord said, Moses, raise up a brazen serpent, and that is the sign of the doctors in our day and time. When you see a pole with a serpent wrapped around it, that's a doctor's sign. It's got a head of the snake on the top of it. We got that out of numbers. So he said, everyone looks lives. Well, who's going to hear Moses say, whoever looks, those that have an ear to hear. And who is going to look? Those have an eye to see. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord have made, have made even both of them. Hearing ear, the seeing eye. Well, you have to have been given that by God. So the same way that God saved Moses and the camp in the wilderness when people were murmuring against God, for God in this same fashion loved the cosmos. That's the word world. It means orderly arrangement. He didn't love everybody. So it modifies the word loved, which is the word agape. He doesn't love everybody. He loved Jacob and hated Esau. So he so loved. What does adverbs do besides tell how, when, and where? They modify They modify verbs, adjectives, and other adverbs. What does this word so modify? It modifies agape. He didn't agape everybody. He only agape Jacob and hated Esau before either one were born. He loved Jacob. Love We've already said love is walking in the commandments of God, Second John 6. So he gave Jacob his commandments and nobody else. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. In Genesis, the 32nd chapter. That's when he was on his way back from the land of Haran, which we called Iraq or Babylon. And he was coming back about 600 miles back to Israel after being away for 20 years because he had stolen his brother's birthright and he ran away to get away from his rage and his anger. So he's coming back. And when he's coming back, he's struck down by an angel of the Lord, probably Jesus. And then he strikes Jacob down and says, what is your name? He says, Jacob. He says, from now on your name will be Israel. And who did God give his commandments to? He gave them to Jacob, to Israel. That's why the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He didn't give Esau any of his commandments. People say, well, he loved Esau less. That's not what it says. It's quoted out of Malachi, the first chapter. Have not loved Jacob and hated Esau? Whoever he gives his commandments to. You have to be spiritual Israel and he has to write his commandments off on fleshy tables of your heart and you have to do that. You have to do his commandments and pull the cover off. You're not going to heaven without doing that somewhere in your life. Now, I don't know what led me here. 
I was getting at something here. Now, I got to show you something about the Bible, about studying. You got to look in the interlinear Bible. There's some things I want to show you that you have to learn when you study. I've got some books over here. Here's a very interesting book. This is called the Mishnah. You noticed I've done a bunch of studying in it. and I use post-it notes to mark my studies. And this is... Gosh, how can I do this without going into a long explanation? This is called the Mishnah. Mishnah. The Mishnah was a follow-up to the Halakha and the Haggadah. And i got to tell you this in order to get to this next subject. Mishnah comes out of Midrash. Midrash means a story. If you've got McClinican Strong, you can look up Midrash and you can look up Mishnah. And there were several uh, steps in the development of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a form of the Halakha. It's a part of the development of Halakha and Haggadah. And this is the law of the Pharisees. You cannot marry, my wife says, until you listen to the Halakal and the Haggadah series, you're not going to be able to understand what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees at all. I've got series on the Halakal and the Haggadah. I've got a bunches of... of uh, messages on the Halakha on the Haggadah. If you see something on that on my website or in on YouTube, look that up. And if you'll take your T volume of your McClinican Strong and look up Talmud. It will begin it will begin the articles by talking about Halakha and Haggadah. And it'll take you down to the Midrash, to the Mishnah. The Halakha, let me say it again. I'll go ahead and kind of start this over again. Let me erase these and start from fresh. You're not going to understand what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and why he's correcting them if you know nothing about Halakha. I've never heard a preacher in America even mention Halakha. You've got Halakha and a McClinican Strong. You got it in a series of books called Commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica. This is a five volume set. I think it's five. Don't even remember. But if you notice, I study this till it's fallen apart. It is the most magnificent set of commentaries I have ever read after. He will tell you 
Exactly. This is by Mr. Lightfoot. Lived back 150, 200 years ago. Something like that. And he will tell you what it's about. There's also a set of books from the Compendia. I'll bring them up next week. It's called Literature of the Sages. A sage is a wise man, but that's a misnomer, a misapplication, because it's talking about the sages or the rabbis. The rabbis. I should call it rabbin, but you wouldn't recognize that. Rabbin, I-N, is plural. Rabbis, we would call it rabbis, plural. So the rabbin, if you're reading it, it says rabbin, it means all the different rabbis. And there's two volumes on literature of the sages, and it'll tell you, it'll say on the first volume, verbal law, It'll say Halakha, Haggadah. It will say Tosefta. Tosefta means an addition, as though God made an addition to his law through the Pharisees later. The Pharisees were During Jesus' days, they were the rabbis. I'll just say rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue. How in the world Babylon is what we call Iraq on the Euphrates River. How in the world did it, did the and the synagogue was started in Babylon? How did Israel get over there? It all had to do with Christmas. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. When they were a nation under kings, everything goes back to that. They were a nation under kings from actually. You can't say all of the books of the kings that were going after Bell and the Grove. You can't say that. Bell and Grove. That's the sun and the tree god. Sun. That's Baal. And in McClinic and Strong, if you look up Hercules, it will say the Tyrian Baal. Looking up Hercules. So Hercules was the same thing as Baal. Baal is also called in one of my books the demon the demon of Tyre. So Tyre was right above Israel. Tyre is the same thing as Lebanon. And that would be Tyre and Sidon. They were synonymous, synonymous names. Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon got all of their 
all of their doctrines from Babylon there on the Euphrates River. Babylon on the Euphrates. This is the Persian Gulf where we had that war back in the early 90s. And here's Babylon right in the middle of, right in the middle of, here's Iraq. There's Euphrates River running down here and the Tigris and they meet about 100 miles north of this Persian Gulf. So, when Israel kept going after all of these sun and tree gods, and it wasn't just one or two, it was when you look at Ezra, the ninth chapter, when Ezra comes back after Israel's been scattered all over, southern Jews has been scattered, he finds the Israelites involved in all the gods of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Ezra just can't believe his eyes that they're worshiping these gods. That was around, that was in the neighborhood of of 456 B.C. They had been scattered in 586 B.C. because all the time Israel had been a nation under kings that had gone off to all these different sun and tree goddesses. It had to do, here's Israel, had to do with all the nations around them and their gods, and they adapted all of these gods of Egypt, the gods of Moab, southern Jordan. This is Jordan right here. That's right next door to Israel. And this is Syria right here. They went after Syria's gods, Rimmon. They went after after the gods of Tyre and Sidon, Baal and the Grove. They went after gods of Egypt. They went after gods of Moab, which is southern Jordan. That was Shemash. Shemash comes from Shemash, and Shemash is one of the words for sun in the Hebrew. They went after the gods of Ammon, which is northern Jordan up here right in this area. So Israel was polluted by all these people that were around them. So God says... If you go after these other gods, I'll send the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And that'll come over and over and all the time from First Kings to Second Chronicles that went after all these gods. Now, they didn't go after them in First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel is what I call the books of David and Saul. That was taken up by Saul and David. Saul was trying to kill David all through 1 Samuel. And then in 2 Samuel, David was messing up, having his affair with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah the Hittite and running for his life while his, while his nephew Absalom was putting an army together to conquer Uncle David. So that's what 1 and 2 Samuel is about. But before 1 and 2 Samuel, judges were ruling them in the wilderness and they were always going after Baal in the grove. So that was an old story with them. So God says, what I'm going to do, I will, I'll send the sword, the famine, the pestilence over and over. And the last thing I'll send is the beast. Beast. The beast is not a man. Never has been. The beast will have a leader which will be the man of sin, it always has had. But it's not a man, and I'll show you something you need to learn when you use your interlinear Bible. 
Let me give you an illustration right here talking about the beast. Go back over to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. And this will bear out what I'm saying. Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, we see... Gosh, there's so many things I hate. I don't need to get into this. I'll stay in it all day. In 13, we see... I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. That sounds so mysterious. It's not mysterious. You'll know what the sea is after I read the rest of this verse. Rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. I go into the seven heads, I go into the ten horns, and I'm not going to do that right now. A head was the capital city of an empire. As of this point, five of these capital cities are fallen, and one is, the sixth is, and the seventh is yet to come in the 17th chapter of this book. A head being a capital city. Horns were powers. I believe without a doubt that the ten horns was when Ahab went after, had his wife Jezebel bring her father's gods into Israel. And they began to worship Baal in the grove. And they lost their power and gave their power over to the beast. The ten northern tribes did exactly that. I believe the ten horns or the ten, each one of the tribes of Israel was called a horn. So the ten northern tribes gave their power over to Assyria and Babylon. They gave up their power. All the time they were obedient to God, they were able to conquer anyone. They conquered. You'd go against your enemy one ways, and they'd flee seven ways. It didn't matter how many there were. I've taught on this in depth. I'll just say that to introduce you to it. And ten crowns upon their heads. If you will notice, back in chapter 12, it speaks of the dragon. It has to be the same thing, dragon, dracon, meaning to fascinate. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. So the dragon is the same thing as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I'm going to show you that. So having seven heads and ten horns, upon the horns ten crowns. That's amazing. It's not hard to figure that out. When you look in the 19th chapter of Revelation, it speaks of Christ coming back on a great white horse with many crowns upon his head. What is that talking about? It's talking about Rome was the king of the world while they were ruling. They would allow every nation to rule themselves as long as they behaved themselves. When one of them rose up and started trying to conquer another nation, like when the Syrian Solution kings, there were four, four kings that took over the 
the rulership of Alexander the Great. And the kings were Lysacomus, Cassander. These were his four generals. Cassander, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. The Ptolemies took over Egypt. Seleucus took over the lion's share of his empire. And the Seleucians, all the Antiochians, Antiochus, we get the word Antioch of Antiochus, all the Antiochians, I'll just put C-A-N-S, there was Antiochus the God, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes. These were usually the guys that tried to conquer. And Antiochus Epiphanes is the Old Testament picture of the man of sin at the end of time. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's up here ruling this Seleucian Empire. He was also ruling all this around here when he was king. And he came down here trying to overtake Egypt. And he came down and sat down right across the table from the Ptolemy, Philip. But he he went back outside of town. He was going to attack. I'm telling you why many crowns on his head. He was going to try to attack Egypt. Well, he is the... Seleucus was a force. He was trying to grow into an empire, but he never managed it. An empire controls all the civilized world. He was the most dangerous guy probably of anybody that tried to raise up an empire and didn't quite make it. So he goes down here to attack Egypt. Rome hears about this. And they say, they send a message. You get away from Egypt. We're the kings of kings. Now we'll let you rule we'll let you rule your Seleucian Empire, which later on will be called Syria, but you don't do anything that we don't want you to do. So this message comes from Rome and says, Go over here to Chetum, which is what Cyrus was called Cyprus was called C H I T T I M. And this emissary from Rome goes down here and meets meets Antiochus Epiphanes on the island of Cyrus. Cyprus, not Cyrus, Cyprus. When he meets him, he says, stand still. And he draws a circle around him. Now Antiochus is proud and arrogant and lifted up. And he's a butcher. And he draws a circle around around Antiochus. He says, do not step out of that circle until you promise that you will not attack Egypt. You understand? If you do, we will send the legions of Rome. We are the kings of all the kings. You're the king of Syria, but we are your king. And the Romans called themselves kings of kings, and so did the Assyrians, and so did the Babylonians when they were ruling all the world. They were kings of kings. That's the many crowns on his head. And of course, that's when Antiochus says, All right! He just is enraged. So when he gets the word, he goes back to his armies, heads back up to Israel, attacks Israel, 
desecrates the temple, that's a picture of the man of sin at the end of time. Race offers a swine on the altar. Some of the writers say he raised up an asteroid in the temple of God. And he caused the sacrifice to cease there. That's another whole story. That's why kings of kings and lords of lords. That's because that's exactly what that's what the Romans called themselves. In other words, they had many crowns on their heads. So when Christ comes back and says they have called themselves kings of kings, but they're not, that's me. Something else. Now, let's read on. And I'm trying to show you how you look at the beast in an interlinear Bible and in your Bible. So let's keep reading. Stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. It's not hard when you look at a map. The beast was Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and their empires ruled on the sea. That's why it comes up out of the sea. And look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard. And then it says his feet. That's a bad translation. His feet was as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and his great authority. Every time you got his or him, that's wrong. Let me show you why. His is A-U-T-O-U. Atu is a form of A-U-T-O. A-U-T-O. A-U-T-A-T-A. A-U-T-N-U. And they're all a form of our word A-U-T-O. An automobile is self-mobile. An autobiography is a biography written by the man himself who lived it. Autu is this word, him or his. Autu, according to Mr. What did I do with my... Great book. Here it is. This is a good book to have. I'm going to show you some things in this. Basics of Biblical Greek by William Mounts. This thing I've got on the board with all the words the on it comes out of Machen's first year for Biblical Greek. That's This was out of Machen's here. See if I can get back to that real quick. And here it is. This right here. This is all the words the. 24 ways to spell the. That's a, called a definite article. The. In English we have the, a, and an. 
A and an are indefinite articles. The means in a given situation, that's the only one. In fact, when you, I was going to tell you a while ago, John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world. It says, for ho God. But it won't say ho, which is the word the. Here it is right here. Nominative case, masculine singular. Ho. It says the God. You know what that does? Eliminates any other God, doesn't it? Just John 3.16. But it won't even say it in your interlinear Bible. You have to look at the Greek right above the line. And it says for God, but it doesn't say the God. You'll only find that hole in the line with the Greek. You understand what I'm saying? You have to be able to look at the Greek text. And you need to memorize your alphabet in order to be able to do that. So it says, so when it says for the God, that means there is no other God, right? So when people want to come up and, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say, they'll say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was a God. Anytime you find a or an in a Greek text or in a Greek translation, it's never there. How can you tell a or an? You can only tell it by the context of Scripture. That's the only way. There's none there. It's never there. When the Bible says that Satan was bound 8,000 years, it's not there. Just Satan was bound 1,000 years. And that's another story. I don't have time to go into that. Now, so this is good to have. Basics of Biblical Greek. I'm going to show you something that he'll show you here in just a minute. I want you to learn this is Machen's book. Mr. Machen, Basics of the New Testament Greek for Beginners. These charts came out of this right here. And if you can, Mr. Machen was one of the most respected scholars, Greek scholars in America for 50 years. They used this book in nearly every seminary in America. These are modern guys that know a lot about the Greek. I like William Mounts. He says some good things. I'll show you some things he said. All right. Now, where was I going to go? All right. Let's finish this here. Finish what I'm saying. A-U-T-O-U. Him or his. It has to be, when you see A-U-T-O-U, it has to... It has to either be masculine or neuter gender. How can you tell which one? It has to match the gender. I keep saying gender means gender means masculine, feminine, or neuter. Masculine is male. Feminine is female. Neuter is a thing. A table, a car, a floor. But girl is feminine. Boy is masculine. That's the way it works. Is that important? Oh, yes, sirree. Now, 
the antecedent the antecedent it has to match the gender of the antecedent what is an antecedent well it's pretty easy antecedent the antecedent is the noun or pronoun that a word refers back to. It has to match the gender of the noun or the pronoun. When the Bible says the beast, the beast, Tothereon. When the Bible says him or his or his, the dragon gave him his seat, his part, his great authority. That's the word A U T O U or two. It'll either be masculine, it'll either be masculine or neuter gender. According to the antecedent, and the antecedent is the beast, Tothereon. Tothereon is neuter gender. It is a thing. It is a world ruling system. It is not a man. And in your inner linear, it will say its. Doesn't say in your inner linear, him. That's another one of the mistranslations in the King James Bible. Now, can you verify something else on that? Why would God have the beast in the Old Testament be a system and be a man in the New? He would look over at Daniel. Daniel, the seventh chapter. Daniel 7. You've got to learn to match things up. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. And it's going to tell you about the beast right here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. This is called the Mediterranean. One of the titles for it was Great Sea. So there's four winds. All of these, the Bible speaks of a east wind coming from the east to come and attack Israel. The east wind was Babylon. There's something else. Well, I won't go into that now. Another subject. All right. So he says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. You got four beasts here. It had eagle's wings. Eagle's wings meant it moved fast. This is the beast. It's the same beast that you find in Revelation 13. Revelation 13. 
That's why Atu is neuter gender. It has to be a system, not a man. These guys that translated the King James Bible, they made a lot of mistakes. But we have the original text in the text receptus in the in the Greek in an interlinear Bible. The first was like a lion had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given unto it. That's speaking about Nebuchadnezzar there in the fourth chapter being struck down on his all fours for seven times, probably seven months, till his hair grew out like eagle's feathers and his fingernails grew out like bird claws. That'd take seven months. And he walked on his all fours and ate grass with the cattle of the field. And the Bible says, when he came to his right mind, he stood up and said, all the inhabitants of the earth, because of this statement by Nebuchadnezzar, makes me believe he very well may have been a believer. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will, speaking of God, in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay the hand of God. Mecca is the word stay. It means to stop or arrest as God goes to do something. None can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? That's Nebuchadnezzar's words. Very well may have been a believer. So he stood upon his feet like a man. And behold, another beast, a second like a bear. So you got the lion. That's Babylon. Why a lion? Because the lion is the most regal of all the beasts of the Serengeti. That's the great big desert there in Africa. And that's where the lions run free. So the lion is Babylon. The most regal of empires. It straddled the Euphrates River. It was 14 miles on each side. Where do you get that? You can get that out of Babylon, your B volume in McClinic and Strong. It had moats that were deep. It had moats that were like 375 feet deep. And the river ran through Babylon and around Babylon. Except there was a seven-tier bridge that went across from one to the other where they could walk over. And it went around it, and the walls were like 380 to 90 feet high. And they said, we are unconquerable. We can't be conquered. We're too great. It was magnificent. And they put all kinds of aqueducts through Babylon. And that's why they had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. When you were coming out across the desert and you saw Babylon in the distance, you said, what is that magnificent structure? It was unbelievable. So all of the men who conquered Babylon wanted to stay there because of the beauty of it, including the kings of Persia, and that's the bear. The bear. Why a bear for Persia? Because the bear is the largest carnivore in the world. Nothing could stand up beside 
a polar bear, no Siberian tiger, nothing. Could stand either up to a polar bear or a Kodiak bear. The Kodiak outweighs the polar bear. Sometimes the Kodiak, the polar will be a little taller. But they're both, when they stand up, raise their arms up, raise their paws up, arms, what are you going to call them? Raise their paws up. They're like 18 feet tall, 17, 18 feet. That is monstrous. Well, the largest armies that ever existed was the Persian armies that have two and a half million men in their army. And they would attack Carthage or anywhere else. And they would just annihilate them. So that's the bear. If the beast is... A world system in the Old Testament. God didn't change it into a man in the new. That's a bad translation in Revelation. It's still the same beast. The beast was a world ruling system. At the end of time, the beast is going to rise up. I believe it's already rising. It's a controlling system of the world. What amazes me is Roman Catholicism has got a hold of all the world. It very well be mean. It, the man of sin could be the Pope. I'll put it this way. The Pope's office. They have power with every system of the world through him. Now, let me finish reading this. Behold, another beast, the second like a bear, raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in his mouth. What this is, is three conquerings it's three victories when he conquered conquered Lydia Babylon and Egypt this is the bear and had three conquerings between his teeth and they said unto it arise devour much flesh and that's what Persia did Persia was Iran Afghanistan Pakistan and all of the stands you have you have a bunch of stands over here in that area and that was all Persia so Persia comes in conquers Babylon remember they did that by drying up the river Babylon says we cannot be conquered so Cyrus you can get this out of Herodotus Out of Herodotus, he is the father of all history. You can buy his current books. It's a two-volume set. You can order them, and it's a magnificent set of books. He's the first historian to write down history. And you can get this out of Herodotus. He will say the same things in his book that you'll get out of Isaiah. Isaiah the the 44th and 45th chapter. And he comes from over here in Persia or Iran. And he comes north of Babylon. Babylon says we can't be conquered. The most powerful river in all of that ancient Middle East area is the Euphrates River. They ship to all over that part of the world. It is a huge river, bigger than the Mississippi. So what they do, what Cyrus does, he goes north of Babylon, goes up here, and just diverts 
puts a dam up and runs the Euphrates River out into the Arabian Desert. And how much water can you put in the Arabian Desert? All you want to put, it'll soak it all up. So he runs it down, dries up the river, and you're going to see Babylon dried up. You're going to see the Euphrates dried up over in the book of Revelation. And the Euphrates is talking about all that it ships to all the world, all of the things and stuff. When you see Babylon go down in Revelation, the 18th chapter, then all the merchants of the earth are crying and weeping over this burning mountain that's sinking into the sea. God says Babylon has been a destroying mountain. She's been a proud mountain. How she's a, a mountain was a capital city of an empire. You can find that under the word mount in your McClinic and Strong. Just look up mount. It'll tell you. A mountain was a capital city. Heavens was a ruling class. Horns were powers. They all are equivalent to the same thing. Heavens, powers, horns. It's four horns at the end of the first chapter of Zechariah. Four horns carried Israel away captive. Who was that? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That's the four horns. It's not so hard if you can look at a map when you're studying these things. Look at it. A map makes all the difference in the world. And then he goes on to say, After this I beheld, lo, another like a leopard, another beast coming up out of the great sea. And the leopard was this Macedonian prince. Macedon is northern Greece. The Peloponnesus is connected. You see there's a little land bridge there. You got you got a little something like a hand that goes down here like this. There's a land bridge. This is called the Peloponnesus down here. That's the Peloponnesus. This is Macedon up here all the way up to Philippi and Thessalonica. When Paul got the message from over here in what we call Turkey or Asia Minor, come over into Macedonia and help us, that was the Macedonian call. Macedon is northern Greece, and that was considered the rednecks of Greece. All of the education of Greece is found down here in Corinth and Athens. Athens was the educational war, educational system of the world back at that time. So it was a Macedonian prince named Alexander the Great. His father was Philip, who had started this great empire movement, and Alexander was considered the he was the leopard. Why is a leopard, how can a leopard overcome the bear? It doesn't seem quite right. I've studied the leopard. Leopard is the most dangerous animal you want to encounter 
in the Serengeti Desert. A leopard hunts at night. He hunts alone. He hunts to kill and to eat. If he gets old of you, he's going to kill you. He's going to take you and he can climb to the top of a tree with a 150-pound man in his mouth. And he climbs up to keep the other animals to get into him. And nobody else can get up there and, and steal his kill. Leopards are very dangerous. Alexander the Great was an extremely dangerous military general. He had some of the most unbelievable tactics that he used. That's how he conquered the bear beast. He would hit it, his haunches over here, hit back up, hit over here. He had some, I've told it before, I saw a special on Alexander the Great on some document. And he would do strange things. If the enemy had chariots, if they had chariots of iron, that have the wheels here. The iron chariots had the scythes. Those were like swords going out on the wheels. You saw those in the old Ten Commandments or the old Ben-Hur that was erasing the chariots. They had the scythes on the side and nobody could stand against those. They would go in and just rip people apart. And Alexander the Great didn't try to figure out how to stop the chariots. He figured out how to stop the horses. He studied the horses. How can he get a horse to stop in his charge? And he found out that if he had a, if the enemy, if they were coming toward him in these chariots, and he had his battle line here like this, all you have to do is open up the battle line have the soldier step back when a chariot's coming up and have it opened up and a horse will stop. That's what he found out. He studied the horses. And they will stop. So they'd pull the guy off the chariot, kill him, and take his chariot. He studied the horse instead of the chariots. He couldn't figure out, you can't figure out how to stop those chariots. They were just too devastating. Those were the tanks of the day. He had other... They studied some of his ways, I've heard, at West Point. That he was so brilliant with his mind. He was just... He was a homosexual. <laughs> That's what's amazing. He was this great fighter. He had... He would have entire companies of slings. The sling was a deadly weapon. David wasn't some little skinny guy when he went out after Goliath. The reason David wasn't in Goliath's army wasn't because he was a poor little skinny shepherd boy going, golly gee, I'm just a kid. That wasn't what it was. David wasn't old enough to be in the army. He had to be 20 years old. He was probably 17 or 18. He wasn't old enough to be in Saul's army. So, But when he went out after Goliath, he told he told King Saul, I can't wear your arm. I haven't proven it, but I have proven this sling. I'll hit that guy 50 yards away. They could hit, they could hit a target, a hair's breadth of a target at 50 yards. 
David said, I can put a rock right here, and he won't last. And the Bible says he ran towards Goliath with all his might. He wasn't going around like <laughs> like people show in movies. He was running towards him, swinging that sling, and he was an expert. And Alexander the Great had expert slingers, and he would charge his army in, and right before they would get to to the Persian army, he'd have the horses go off to one side, and he had a line of sling men back here, and they would just start picking them off and taking them out. The guy was a genius. So when he goes after the Persian army, he is just like a leopard. He's a killing machine. That's what he was. That was Greece. And that's all on the Mediterranean coming up out of the sea. That's what, that's not mysterious. Just look at a map. The world was ruled by Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome on the Mediterranean Sea only. The Huns, the Vandals, the Huns came from the Far East, from Mongolia. The Vandals came from over in the Far East, and they were all rampaging across. And all of the Caesars was afraid that they were going to come in here and sack Rome and overthrow Rome. So, so Constantine in 312 A.D. he said, "We got to stop these Huns and Vandals and Goths and Visigoths, and and they're all over here. You got you got the Burgundians, the Franks, the Saxons. They were all heathens." The beast was ruling only on this right here. That was most of civilization. So what Constantine did, he said, we'll bring all of their gods into the church, we'll quit crucifying the, we'll quit killing the Christians, and we'll all be nice to each other. And that's what brought Christmas into the church. That's when he brought all of their gods into the church. Now, now let's finish this up. And behold, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. What's the four heads? The beast at this time was Alexander the Great. He kept his empire headquarters at Babylon on the Euphrates River because it was so beautiful. He died when he was about 32. It's believed that Seleucus killed him because he had the lion's share of, of his empire. It's believed that he killed him. Seleucus wasn't a very nice guy. <laughs> he was always wanting to ascend everybody's throne or Antiochus. So it's believed that he killed him and then it was divided up into these four, these four, what, how does he put it? These four heads. These four heads, Seleucus, Cassander, Lysacomus, and Ptolemy. And they split his empire up, and that's the four heads. So if this is an empire here, that's what it is in Revelation 13. It's a Go back to Revelation 13. How much time do I have, Mike? I'm not getting to where I want to go today. I'll just keep on this next time we meet. 
Revelation 13. And the fourth beast that rises up is a beast with iron teeth. And iron always denotes Rome. Iron teeth. You got to remember Nebuchadnezzar's image, Nebuchadnezzar's image in in Daniel two was. Let me put it like this: Nebuchadnezzar's image. In Daniel 2, it had a head of gold, had a torso of silver, had a breastplate of brass, and it had legs of iron. That's the beast with iron teeth. Iron was considered a cursed metal in the ancient world. It was the strongest of metals. They had not come up with a method of carbonizing iron, which made it into steel yet. So they didn't have steel at that time. The strongest of metals was iron. So you find the iron the iron legs is a picture of Rome. The brass torso, I've got it kind of in the wrong place. Anyway, the brass torso is a type of Alexander the Great. The silver is a type of the bear of Persia. And the gold, even Daniel went before Nebuchadnezzar and said, Thou art that head of gold. So if Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, that's Babylon. Then the next thing would be silver or the bear or Persia. And the next would be the brass, if you notice, the further you come down the image, the stronger the metals, but the less precious the metals. And you have over here in Revelation 9, you have you have locusts coming out of the bottomless pit, the bottomless pit needs an explanation. Bottomless pit is a terrible translation. Terrible. It It is the word abusos, A-B-U-S-S-O-S. It comes from two words. Well, actually one word, bathos or bathizo, which is a form of the same word, which means something with great knowledge. And the alpha primitive in front of that, bathos, translates abusos, or our word abyss. It means no knowledge. So bottomless pit doesn't, it's not a pit with no bottom, that's a dumb translation. It's a place of no knowledge. Here's the point. No one in the Mediterranean had any knowledge of God except Israel on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. They're the only ones that had knowledge of God. So the place of no knowledge is the world at that time except Israel. They had the knowledge of God. The knowledge will not be extended to 
the Gentiles until Acts 2. So, and then you've got these locusts that are like scorpions. Scorpion is the word scorpios, S-K-O-R-P-I-O-S. That is the noun and the verb form of scorpion is scorpizo. And scorpizo means to scatter. When the Bible says the hireling, the man who preaches for money in John 10, he cares not for the sheep. He allows the wolf to come in and scatter. Wolves are false teachers according to Matthew, the the 7th chapter and Acts, the 20th chapter. When I leave Paul said, grievous wolves will come in and devastate the flock. But what's amazing, scorpions are false teachers. The scripture says in John 10, the hireling cares not for the sheep, allows the wolf to come in and scatter the verb form of scorpion. And over there in Ezekiel, the second chapter, Ezekiel is over there in Babylon and the Lord says to Ezekiel, You dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words. Scorpions have words. False teachers. That's what they are. They're not demons like John MacArthur says. They're false teachers. What really gets me later on in the chapter, the Bible says these scorpions have breastplates of iron. I've got a book on arachnids. Arachnids are eight-legged creatures. That's what a scorpion is. He's an arachnid. And in the arachnid book, it says you can tell what family that a scorpion is with by his breastplate. These scorpions have breastplates of iron. They have the same thing as the torso of iron, the beast with iron teeth, Rome, Rome. That's what it is. So you got to go into more than just some opinion if you're going to study these things. I've never heard any preacher even understood this. Did I get that out of some book about Abu Sas coming from Bathos? Yeah, I got it out of a book. What book did you get it out of? My Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And whenever I'm looking at something, what gets me, if I'm looking at scatter or scorpion, I open my concordance and I just go down the line where it says scorpion. I just read a little of the sentence in all of those places and I hit Ezekiel to you dwell among scorpions. I said, oh, oh, that must be it. And that is it. Do you notice how easy some of this is if you keep defining everything and connect everything with everything else? Nothing is there. No Bible verse stands alone. Can you see that? And you got to go back over here to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verse 2, The beast which I saw is still the same world system, was like a leopard. 
Greece. And its feet was the feet of a bear, Persia. It's talking about a world system. It's not talking about particularly Persia or Greece. Whoever's ruling the world. And his mouth is the mouth of a lion, Babylon. And the dragon, Dracon, a fascinator, make you feel good, gave him his seat, his power, and great authority. And look down here in verse 11. And beheld another beast. Another beast is neuter gender. It's also a system that speaks for the world ruling system. What if I said new world order? That's going to rule the world. It very well may be headed up. It's going to be a fascinating thing that makes everybody feel good. And we're going to settle all of this racist problem. We're going to settle everything. No, you're not. Nobody's going to fix it. There'll be distress as a nation with perplexity at the end of time. Perplexity. A poor means no answer, no way out. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and had had two horns like a lion, like a lamb. It's going to look like Christ, but it'll speak as a dragon, as a fascinator, somebody to fascinate you. Definition is everything. I've got so many other things to show you. I've got to finish up. I can't finish up the halakha. When Israel... Do I have any time, Mike? I can't go anywhere with that with three and a half minutes. I'll just say to you, I'm going to come back next lesson. This has got so much to it. I'm trying to show you how to look at things in the Bible. The beast, the beast, the beast. I'll just give you one other thing. Hosea 13. Hosea 13. I might as well give you this. I ain't got more time. Hosea. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Michael, Hosea 13. Now that we've established that the beast is Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, then every time you see lion, bear, and leper, you're going to understand this is a world-ruling system, isn't it? Huh? So, he says here in, Revelation, in Hosea 13. All right. This is talking about Hosea. Hosea, the Bible's talking about, Hosea all through it is talking about God bringing judgment on Ephraim, northern Israel. Ephraim, the second-born son of Joseph, had the inheritance of all Israel. You can see that in Genesis, the 48th chapter. And it's talking about what God will do to Israel. Therefore I will be, verse 7, Therefore I will be unto them like a lion, Babylon. As a leopard, by the way will I observe Israel and I will meet them as a bear. That's the same thing. Is It's talking about Israel's going to be carried away into captivity by the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Babylon, Persia, Greece. It's going to finally end up under the feet of the beast with iron teeth. It's not so hard if you know what these things mean. Then he says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. Meet. 
is the word paga. I mean, yeah, paga. Paga is the same word as intuncano in the N-T-U-G-C-H-A-N-O in the Greek. It means to impinge their progress. I'll stop them. It means to intervene. I'll stop them as a blind, a bear, and a leopard. I will. It's like he's going to stop them with Babylon, Persia, Grecian. What's he going to stop them from doing? Worshiping, worshiping all of these sun and tree gods, which was brought in the church and renamed Christmas. That's what he's going to stop them from doing. And he's going to measure out 70 times 7. That's the 70 weeks of Daniel. I'm out of time. I don't have time to go there. It's. I hope I'm helping you to learn to put Bible together with Bible. That's what you have to do to find out what this is about. If you find the beast in Revelation 13, it's a lion, a bear, and a leopard. It's the same thing as the beast, the lion, bear, and leopard, and the beast with iron teeth in Daniel 7 and in Hosea, the 13th chapter. It's going to be the same thing. Can you see that? I've got so many things to say. I, I'm not going to get off this subject. I'm going to stay on it because there's so many things I want you to learn. So many. Well, that's, I've got some notes up here. I, I was going to get to baptism and demons today, and I didn't get there. There's some things on baptism that I've only said once or twice, but I want you to know that, what it is. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and truth. Help us to, Lord, help me to say the things that will make the church grow, that will strengthen the flock. I don't even know what to say anymore other than just teach your word. I pray you'll give me strength. I pray you'll strengthen the sheep, those that are watching on online, on the Internet. Lord, I feel like we're so close to the end that you'll, you'll have to give us strength to last. People are so discouraged and so sad because they've got to stay at home because of this virus. and We know this is your judgment. I pray that you give us strength and courage to do what we need to do and to fight all of our battles. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I forgot to tell you, this. these words are intercession. It means to intercede. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intercede you with a lion, bear, and a leopard. That doesn't sound like prayer intercession that they have at some church, does it? I wish we could clap sometimes, Jim. Huh? I wish we could clap sometimes. I wish we could clap. <laughs> You're funny, Victor. I have to clap for that. Jim, Jim, Jim. What's that under silver? Is that bronze? What's what? Is that yeah. bronze under silver? Bronze, yeah.
This is bronze. This is bronze. Silver, bronze, gold, silver, bronze, and then iron. And I have I have much more to say about the iron. Huh? I can't hear you. Well, that's another story. Well, no, it's not another one. When they wanted to refine clay, they had a clay trough. And the Bible says clay is not mixed with iron in that same chapter. So when they wanted to refine clay, they would walk through this clay getting all of the impurities out. Same thing my third grade teacher, fourth grade, whatever it was, fifth grade, I guess, in my art class, and Ms. Haggard would say, I think that was her name, she would say, we've got to beat all the impurities out of this clay. And I was so serious about that. She said, if you put it in the kiln without getting all the impurities out, it'll just bust all to pieces. So I pounded on that for about two weeks. <laughs> I was afraid to get to make something out of it and have her put it in the kiln. That's what the trough was about. The clay is not mixed with iron. That's talking about this world system treading Israel, miry clay down in the trough. That's what it's talking about. The clay's not mixed with iron. I wish I'd have said that.